Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 21, and I'm going to call Anna Brown to come on up and read for us. So if you could turn to Acts chapter 19, verse 21, and stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 19, 21 through 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And after there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with human hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may also be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she who all Asia and the whole world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent, him, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and the proconsuls and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Thank you, Anna. Appreciate that. All right, if you pull out your outlines today, you'll notice that our, um, our theme today is a little bit interesting. The way of Jesus is disturbing. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, when we turn to our passage, I don't necessarily know why Luke puts this little paragraph in here about how Paul resolved to go 
uh, onto Jerusalem. It kind of breaks up an incredible story, a bunch of events that were kind of happening there in Ephesus. But my hunch uh, as to why Luke wrote this is to start setting the stage for the rest of the book of Acts. You see, Paul was beginning to sense that the Lord was going to take him to Rome. And it becomes undeniable later in Acts. God uh, wants Paul to preach the gospel in Rome too. And so Paul begins to follow God's leading in this. And Paul does eventually make it to Rome, uh, but as a prisoner, not how he thought he would be taken there. And why was he a prisoner? Uh, We will learn why as we come to the last third of the book of Acts. But long story short, the word of the Lord, the people of the kingdom of God, and the way of Jesus were increasingly making a disturbance in the cities where Paul had been preaching, and he was kind of being blamed for it all. In fact, the way of Jesus was disturbing and upsetting the status quo, the social structures, and the economic stability of the whole empire, actually, what What happens in this episode in Ephesus is a microcosm of what was happening all over the world as Christianity was spreading. And so we're going to take a look at this event this morning. So it says that Paul stayed in Ephesus for a while. And it says that after these events in verse 21, and so we got to stop and we got to say, well, what events is Luke referring to? And we're going to tie in the two messages, the one from last week and the one today. Um, The events that happened in the passage we read last week were where the sons of Sceva were routed by this demon-possessed man, remember? And if you remember, all the residents of the city saw uh, what the demon did, and they were in awe at the power of Jesus. So not at the power of the demon, but at the power of Jesus. What the demon did actually brought glory to Jesus. As Jesus was glorified, great fear fell upon the whole city. And what, a, what man went for evil, God meant for good. And so, furthermore, all the believers had a revival then. They, they confessed their evil cultic practices, and they brought their magic books and their idolatrous paraphernalia, and they burned it all up in the middle of the city. And as a result, check out what happened in verse 20. We didn't read it this morning, but turn back just a little bit to verse 20 of 19. It says that the word of the Lord in, continued to increase and prevail mightily. And I want you to hold that thought. So the past few weeks we have talked about how we are to work with our own hands at the employment that God has given to us so that we are dependent upon no one and so we can present the gospel to the people around us. And through this we learn that Jesus promises to provide for us and meet our every need. We also learn that uh, we are to do whatever it is in our power to be at peace with all people. Uh, We're not to take vengeance on people who treat us wrongly. Jesus said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, right? And we learn that Jesus promises to protect us and bring us safely into our heavenly home. And then we learn that God wants to be found, that he created a way uh, for this to happen. He sent his son Jesus. And when we place our faith in him, the Holy Spirit of Jesus comes and lives inside of us, guiding us and directing us and into a deeper relationship with God. And we were reminded last week that Jesus is our only true source of provision and guidance and protection. Now, if you're like me, this sounds pretty good here at church on Sunday as I sit in these comfy, nice chairs, relaxed in the rhythm and cadence of a Sunday worship service and fellowship with like-minded brothers and sisters and the ideas sound kind of bold and courageous here where we all are kind of in together and Jesus is our focus. 
But when we get out into the world and we stand at our jobs all day long and deal with the interruptions and the unwanted surprises and the brokenness of everyday life in a sin-cursed world, when we must work among people who are not like-minded and who don't care about God or for God, and when we see evil and injustice in every news article that we read and around every corner, and when people we love make poor decisions, and when there are rumors of one-world governments and food shortages and lockdowns and limited mobility and loss of freedom and increased surveillance and military unrest, the words of Jesus can kind of seem passive and out of touch. The way of Jesus can sound benign. The commands of Jesus can seem boring and like they don't have any power. If you're anything like me, you may ask yourself, how is Christianity able to disturb anything out there, right? And if you pay attention to some veins in Christianity, you'll hear leaders say that we, the church, are supposed to change society, right? They create a culture that suggests that we, the church, are to usher in God's kingdom And we are to make things right, and we are to end poverty and hunger and homelessness and all those bad things. They might, might not right out say it, but it is conveyed that we, the people, need to establish a nation or a world even where we can live in freedom and speak truth and have a life characterized by peace and joy and rest and prosperity. We must pray big, hairy, audacious prayers and have big, hairy, audacious goals that force God into doing what we think that we want him to do. We're all to be superheroes and fight injustice and crime and evil world powers while the rest of humanity sits around as helpless victims. The church is the hope of the world. Heard that? But here's the truth. We are not the hope of the world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quash that. Jesus is the hope of the world. He is the one who builds his church and establishes his kingdom. It's not us. In fact, Jesus talked of planting seeds, not toppling empires. Mark chapter 4, verse 30. He talked of dying to oneself. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Forsaking all, including our aspirations and our dreams, to follow him. Matthew chapter 8, verse 34. Seeking the Father's will before our own. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Loving our enemies. Matthew 5, 44. Caring for the poor individual in front of us more than the great cause of poverty. Mark chapter 14, verse 7. And valuing nothing except knowing Jesus and making him known. Philippians 3, 8. Now why do I mention all of this? Well, Luke inserts a phrase into the narrative here that is extremely important for us. But so often we read right over it and we miss it altogether because it doesn't sound exciting and it doesn't, it's not about us. So we just go, well, it's not about us, right? But after the believers in Ephesus had this revival and burned their books and turned wholeheartedly to Jesus, Luke states in Acts 19.20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Notice, the word of the Lord is what increased and prevailed. God's word is what increases and prevails mightily. Not us. In other words, God's word, the gospel message of Jesus, increased or was fruitful or continued to reproduce in the hearts of more and more people. Additionally, the word of God, which If you look in John chapter 1 and other places, the word of God 
is Jesus, continued to increase and prevail mightily, meaning Jesus' spirit was planted into the hearts of more and more people, causing his kingdom to grow as he promised. The Holy Spirit of Jesus coming to reside in the hearts of those who placed their faith in his death, burial, and resurrection produced a stir. The Holy Spirit was disturbing the status quo, and not the, ch the church wasn't doing it, the Holy Spirit was. Remember, we titled this whole series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, right? It's not really the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And it, meaning the Word of God, prevailed mightily. This means that God's Word became a force, a power that was causing change, making a stir, overpowering evil, ruling over the lives of people in a very different way than any worldly leader would rule. Jesus prevails and rules quietly, humbly, subversively almost, imperceptibly, until all of a sudden there is a huge movement that is undeniable and uncontrollable. If you want to turn with me, we're going to flip over to Mark chapter 4. I want to prove this point. Mark chapter 4 and verse 26. Jesus is giving some parables. He says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. If you skip down to verse 30, and he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown in, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in it. And if you turn back to chapter 4 of Mark to verse 14, we learn what this seed is, right? The sower sows the word. So the seed is the word of God. And in verse 20, but those that were sown on good soil, so the seeds that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. So the word of God produces the fruits of the kingdom of God in the hearts of those who believe. But this is not a new teaching that came with Jesus. So Jesus is teaching something it seems new, but it's not. The way of Jesus, who is the word of God, is disturbing, and this is an ancient way. It is the way of God. It goes all the way back to Isaiah the prophet who came 700 years before Jesus. And he describes this subversive, disturbing work of the word of God. Isaiah chapter 55, if you want to turn there. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 10. It's a beautiful poem about the word of God. Listen to this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the hungry, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose. It will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you will break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn will come up a cypress. Instead of a briar will come up a myrtle. And it will make, the name, make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. 
So just like rain and snow fall, natural, delicate, pervasive, subversive, they cause growth, so it is with God's word. So it is with the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord will accomplish what God intends for it. It will always do what God wants it to. Instead of a thorn, the prophet says, or instead of kind of the kingdom of darkness, there will be a cypress tree or the kingdom of light. The cypress is a towering evergreen tree full of beauty and life. It's strong and it's hardy and it withstands. Instead of a briar or the kingdom of death will come up a myrtle or the kingdom of life. The myrtle plant is an evergreen plant with beautiful flowers. The oil was used as an antiseptic and a a tonic. In other words, it was medicinal. It healed. And so the word of the Lord is these things and it will make a name for the Lord. Salvation is found in no other name than Jesus. And it, God's word, promotes the kingdom of God and the rule of Jesus. And so the word of the Lord will be an everlasting or an eternal sign or a mark that will not be cut off. It will never end. And so this mustard seed-sized word of God will grow into a cypress tree-sized kingdom of God. And graciously, it will take over the entire world. So Christianity is benign and boring? Not hardly. Now back to Acts chapter 19. What happened to cause the word of the Lord to increase and prevail mightily? Well, something totally unexpected. A burning of books. Now, did the Ephesians, did Ephesian believers sell their evil books and their idolatrous trinkets and, and give the money to the Lord? Actually, they didn't. Nor did they preach about the evils of the society that they just came out of. Nor did they protest the wickedness of sorcery and witchcraft. They didn't set out to destroy the temple of Artemis. They didn't, they didn't focus on any of this stuff. What did they do? They simply followed the way of the Lord and what the Spirit was doing inside of them. They followed the word of the Lord, the logos of God, with all their hearts. The word of God grew like a seed in their hearts, and as a result, they burned the things that took their attention off of Jesus. The things which would distract them from loving Jesus with all their hearts. The things which would tempt them to their selfish lifestyle instead of a life characterized by loving others. You know, when they burned their magic and sorcery books, it amounted to 50,000 pieces of silver. A silver coin known as a drachma, was one day's wage. So 50,000 days' wages. That is 136 years of wages. That's a huge sum. That's a huge sum. Worldly wisdom and financial prudence would tell us that all those books could have been sold and the proceeds could have been given to the church and used to do ministry through the church, right? And they could have funded outreaches or built schools, Hospitals, giving the money to the poor or the needy in the church, right? 136 years worth of wages. They could have ended poverty in Ephesus. Think about it. They could have been the hope of the world. They could have ended poverty in Ephesus. Think of how many people could have been blessed, how many missionaries could have been sent out, how many pastors could have been hired, how many meals given to the homeless. They would have been the hope of the world. But God doesn't work that way. God works through his word, not through human wisdom. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And God's word will accomplish what he intends for it to accomplish. 
Now the books of sorcery and evil needed to be destroyed so that others could not be deceived by their lies and corrupted by their power. The Christians didn't sell their evil practices for financial gain. They burnt them up in the best place for evil, which is fire. That's why God created the lake of fire. And for the church, the cost of the books was irrelevant. The money was a non-issue. The years of wasted wages, think of all those years, was worth nothing but fuel for the fire. Why? Because Jesus had saved them from all of that. He had saved them from their way of life before and provided them with a new way going forward as they followed his way. And the seed of obedience to Jesus was planted in the ground and the word of God was spoken and it was heard and it was planted and it prevailed and it increased in the hearts and the lives of many people in Ephesus. And the seed of God's word sprouted and then grew into a flourishing plant and the believers began to bear fruit in keeping with the way of Jesus, living in such a way that he was plan A and there was no plan B. They burnt it up. This new lifestyle began to move the ground and actually change the landscape. In short, the way of Jesus caused a disturbance because Jesus is the hope of the world. And we get to our second point, a disturbance by a silversmith named Demetrius. Well, actually, it was by the way, the way of Jesus. Let's turn to 19 and verse 23. And that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So Demetrius was standing there in his storefront shop one day, and he noticed, I have not changed my production line of these little silver shrines that I make of Artemis, and, but I have a larger stock than normal. And a little door on the top of my shop door doesn't ring as frequently as it did in the past. And there are fewer and fewer buying my work. Very few seem to want statues of Artemis anymore. This is not good. I have to support my family. Business is not well. It's the only way I know to make a living. And so Demetrius gathers others from around the city who had similar trades, making idols and shrines and trinkets and amulets for the worship of Artemis. They all made a living selling these things to the inhabitants of uh, the city and to the tourists who would come in and those on pilgrimage to the great temple. Necessary things for the worship of the great Artemis. These were the must-have things so that everyone was on the same page and worshiping the same God. You see, this was a big moneymaker. I learned in my study that the cult of Artemis was arguably the largest in the world at that time. There were over 30 worship sites spread throughout the Roman Empire. Artemis was the favorite Greek goddess, sort of like the modern-day Wonder Woman, right? Uh, she was the goddess of wild animals and the hunt. Inscriptions on various uh, items dating back to that time portray Artemis as a goddess who answered prayer. 
She was a goddess who was viewed as a savior. She was granted, she was the one who granted success in hunting and fertility and gardening and childbirth. And the sculpture of Artemis, which was uh, housed in the great temple on top of this hill, was surrounded in folklore. Supposedly, whatever was used to sculpt the idol had actually fallen like a meteor from heaven. Verse 35 talks about that or alludes to it. Now, whether this is true or not, it was what was believed, and so that was part of their reality. And the temple was actually four times the size of the Greek Parthenon. It, was, it had 127 60-foot columns, and it spanned a distance of four football fields by two football fields. This, this temple was ginormous. And the temple was also known as a place of asylum, a safe place to put one's money it was the modern-day World Bank, or the World Trade Center of its time. It housed all the money of that area. So it's almost unbelievable to consider what Demetrius here is suggesting. He was suggesting that the quiet, imperceptible, humble way of Jesus, believing in Jesus, dying to oneself, loving others as God uh, wanted us to, living in, in a community of Christians, that this was actually posing a challenge or a threat to the most influential and the greatest cults of its time. The society, the culture, the economics, the politics were all built around the worship of Artemis. How could the way of Jesus actually challenge something so big? But it was. The way of Jesus was disturbing the status quo. It was challenging the religion of the time. It was wrecking havoc on, on the solid economy because Christians were living so differently than the world around them. All this because the word of God was changing them from the inside out. And so Demetrius pulled a bunch of his fellow tradesmen and craftsmen together and he gave them this pep talk speech of the year, right? We're wealthy only because we, uh, of what we sell in connection with Artemis. And we've all seen, not just here in Ephesus, but all around Asia as we travel around, that the message of this man, Paul, that, that gods that are made with hands are not gods at all, is turning away our customers, right? And if, these, if this continues, there is danger of our trade. It's going to become obsolete. And then the temple of the great goddess Artemis, it's going to be brought to nothing. And that means that the money that's stored there is going to, go away and all the wealth and tourism and pilgrimages will cease. Our goddess may even be deposed of her magnificence. This wouldn't just affect us, but it's going to affect the whole world. For all of Asia and the rest of the world worship Artemis. You talk about sensationalism, right? Good grief. Sensationalism. You thought we were the only generation that had to deal with this stuff. But what does Demetrius use as his motivating factor? Fear. Fear of losing security, fear of losing finances, fear of losing power, fear of losing control. Sound familiar? And he says, we have to stop this. We can't let it happen. We have to save Artemis. We have to save the world. I know Luke doesn't record him saying this, but it is inferred. In other words, he gathers them together saying, we can't let this happen, right? When, hum when humans think that they have to save the world, it always leads to no good. And isn't it ironic that humans have to save the goddess from plummeting in the goddess ratings? The humans have to save the goddess's reputation. The humans feel the need to protect the world from this terrible danger called Christianity or the way 
Shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't it be the goddess's job to do that? I'm just saying. If you are God, then you should be able to fend for yourself, right? Right? After all, the people come to you for success in the hunt, for fertility in the field and in childbirth, for answers to their prayers. Why on earth would they need to defend your honor and your popularity? It's ludicrous. But you know, people do it all the time. People worship things that the true God created or what man created, and then they feel the need to defend or protect their gods, little g. I think the clearest example of this is those who worship Mother Earth, right? If Earth is your all-powerful God, which gives you everything that you need to live, then why do you need to make sure that you protect her? Why do you have to save the planet? The planet saves you, right? Many people today worship science. The slogan is, science will save us. Science may have created all kinds of uh, neat cures to a few diseases, but that science also created the atomic bomb and many other harmful things to humans. I'm not sure science is the most reliable thing in which to put one's trust. And ironically, science is simply discovering what God has already created. Many per- people worship things that men create, like cars and boats and houses and guns and electronics. And if these things have all their attention and supply them with all the purpose and success and protection that they need in life, that they, that they think they need, then why do they have to purchase insurance to protect the things that they have? Why do they need to defend the amount of time they spend with those things? Why do they have to repair their gods? Many people follow worldly religions or cults or worship gods from around the world, and the question is, why do these cults have to physically conquer other people or go to war or fight or terrorize in order to spread their religion or promote their god? If their god is any god at all, shouldn't their god do the fighting for himself? This is why Jesus is altogether different. He is holy. He is different. He is other. His way is the way of love. Jesus doesn't need defending or protecting. In fact, he asks us to witness to the fact that he can defend and protect himself. And he proved it by rising from the dead. And our God, Jesus, will come back and he himself will save us and he himself will destroy his enemies, defend his honor, and protect his people. He doesn't need anyone to do that for him. Why? Because he's God. Because he's God. And if you are God, you don't need anyone else's help. Well, these artisans felt that they needed to defend their poor, helpless little goddess, and so they set out to do something. And as we've learned all through the book of Acts and through experience, what do people do who do not have Jesus naturally do in order to protect and defend their own little gods and goddesses? Well, they get violent, unruly, and they riot. It's been all through history, and it continues to today. So point number three, a riot, verse 28. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense of the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this crowd hears Demetrius, and they become enraged. And our enemy, the devil, loves to stir people up into a frenzied wrath, an anger that's uncontrollable. Why? Because in a state of... Uh, in this type of state, humans make horrible decisions and become dangerously violent towards one another, right? Vengeance becomes the motivator instead of love. The devil stirs up and causes division and discord, harm and, and pain through stirring up anger and instigating riots and violence. And look at what happened in Ephesus, verse 29. Imagine hundreds, if not thousands of people coming together. And they're all crying out, chanting in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians and it says that the city was filled with confusion. Confusion breeds uncertainty and edginess and distrust and chaos. And they rushed together. They ran violently into the theater. It's like a stampede, people rushing together to try to get into this place. There's dust and sweat and yelling and chanting. And they drag two men into the middle of the group. And when a group gets worked up, they feel the need to vent their frustration somewhere. So they find someone as a scapegoat to put their frustration on someone to punish and then you skip down to 32 and 34 the assembly was in confusion not knowing why they had even come together isn't it interesting that human nature is such that we don't even need a reason to be angry or up in arms or violent many go right along with the passion of the crowd at the moment we are so much like sheep and then wanting to pull attention from themselves some jews sent a scapegoat into the middle and his name was alexander Alexander wanted to make a defense, probably to say that this was not the fault of the Jews, it was someone else, <clears throat> but they never got a, he never got a chance. For the crowd recognized that he was a Jew, and then they yelled for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, and they just continued for two long hours, more chanting, louder, longer, more intense, and now directed at the Jews, our goddess is better than your God. It was a challenge. And the idolatrous crowd, or the assembly, as Paul puts it, was characterized by confusion and, and uh, hurry and violence and screaming and yelling and anger and blame-shifting and racism and hatred and self-preservation and falsehood. That's what idolatry causes. Meanwhile, look at what Paul was up to. Paul wishes to go out into the crowd. He, I tend to look at Paul as a scrapper. He was a fighter, right? He talked about training his body like a boxer. He was strong enough to drag people out of their homes and throw them into prison, right? So I'm not sure what Paul thought he was going to do in this situation. My guess is this is not his, uh, one of his better moments. Uh, thankfully, the disciples did not let him go out into the crowd, and some of the Asiarchs, who were also his friends, urged him not to go either. And his disciples and friends of Paul's were wise and they protected Paul from going into a difficult circumstance where he easily could have been swept up into the violence and the crazy, right? They protected him from doing something that he probably shouldn't have done. The Apostle James, when writing to a group of believers, said the following in James 1, verse 19. He said, Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The world defends and represents their gods and goddesses through rage and violence and, 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 and rioting. 
Christians defend, if you want to put it that way, and represent their God through love and joy and peace and kindness. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the contrast? What is the difference between worshipers of Jesus and those who worship other things? Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As Jesus' disciples, we, unlike the world, can love all people. We can live peaceably. We can act in kindness because we have incredible promises and assurances from Jesus. Assurances and promises that the world does not have as relates to their idols. Idols like Mother Earth and science and material possessions. You see, Jesus saved us by grace. Not so with idols. With idols, it's all about people saving their idols through what they do. Jesus provides for us and supports us. Not so with idols. With idols, people need to provide for and support and protect their idols. Jesus never leaves us. Idols are never there for their worshipers in the first place. They're not even real. Jesus is a victorious king, and we don't need to defend him or protect him. Not so with idols. They can easily be defeated and continually need to be defended. Their flimsy popularity, their fabricated magnificence is easily destroyed. And as followers and worshipers of Jesus, we don't need to resort to being enraged at those who come against him or threaten his honor because our God can take care of himself. Our anger does not produce the righteousness of God. It is actually God's kindness that leads people to repentance. And his kindness is displayed and given to mankind through God's people loving one another. <clears throat> 1 John 4.11 says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, the world will see God's love through us as we love one another. And John continues, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. There is no fear in love, John says, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In contrast, idolatry is perpetuated by fear. John ends this portion. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is what makes Christians different than the world. We love because our God is love. We are peace because our God is victorious. We have joy because Jesus is all we need. We rest because Jesus has done the work of saving us all by himself. And I hope that you see the important contrast and the importance that this is for us in the 21st century, which is a century full of idolatry. Our fourth point is a response by this town clerk, verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious, in other versions it would say temple robbers, nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. 
But if you seek anything further, it should be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So this town clerk had some good points. He's making the point that if their great goddess was so great, why did this crowd need to defend them? Remember what Demetrius had said concerning Paul's message, right? Paul is saying that the gods made with human hands are not gods at all. And the clerk was answering that accusation with really, everyone knows that the stone of her image fell from heaven. No one can deny that the great temple of hers is greater than all the others. So if the stone fell from heaven, then it's not made with human hands anyway, according to his argument, right? And the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of Artemis. In other words, we know what happens in and around that temple. The money's still safe in the bank. We're fine. And the word translated sacrilegious in 37 actually means temple robbers. And so the clerk is saying, these guys aren't robbing our temples. They haven't gone in there. The money's still there. And these guys have not said anything blasphemous against Artemis. They've simply spoken about someone else. In fact, these men haven't even spoken about her at all. It's not a crime to not speak about someone, so we better just ignore them because we actually have nothing on them. They've done nothing wrong. Don't worry about Artemis. She'll be fine. And the town clerk knew the danger that this mob was causing to the city and to the freedom that they enjoyed. You see, the clerk told the crowd that if Demetrius and the craftsmen had a legitimate complaint, they should hold it up in a court of law with evidence. And the courts were open. They could do that. Otherwise, there was not much they could do. The whole town was in danger of being charged with rioting. Rioting was against Roman law, and it was strictly punished. The Roman government would punish them by refusing them government funds, by destroying the city, and by killing the people in the mob. That was a big deal. And all these were legitimate possibilities if there was not a justifiable reason for the commotion. And so the, cl- the clerk's sound reasoning quit, quit, stops the riot and the mob, And he took a politically moderate stance, actually. He didn't legitimize the way of Jesus, but he also didn't seem to agree with Demetrius' assessment of the situation either. In fact, he didn't seem to think the teachings of Jesus even had a chance at thwarting the worship and the cultic activities and the huge pile of money in the temple of Artemis. So he dismisses everyone. He wasn't going to do anything about it. And the story ends there. So how do we apply a crazy story like that. A few thoughts as we close. The way of Jesus is disturbing in that the word of God and the way of Jesus disturbs our status quo. It, it upsets our preconceived notions. It contradicts the world's best practices. It challenges our assumptions. It brings light into darkness. It breathes light into dead bones. It pokes holes in our water-tight arguments. It unearths our hidden sins and our secret idolatries. You see, the way of Jesus is disturbing because it is incompatible with the way of the world and the worship of false gods. False gods are visible, premised upon lies and propaganda, promoters of violence and disunity and foster hate, encourage us to be selfish and proud and demand that we be strong and wise and all full of ourselves. The way of Jesus is completely opposite. In fact, the way of Jesus is a paradox. We live as citizens of a kingdom that's invisible. We spread seeds of truth so that falsehood can be exposed. We enlist 
others in the kingdom through witnessing about this king who can take care of himself and what he's done for us, not by conquest and violence. We love our enemies. We do good to those who persecute us. We die in order to live. We give in order to be rich. We serve in order to be great. We follow in order to lead. We become weak in order to be strong. We appear foolish as we follow the wisdom of God. The Artemis, Apollo, Epaphrodite, gods of ancient Greece and Rome are similar to the Mother Earth, science, and and socialist self-image gods of modern society today, but none of these gods are a match for Jesus. It may seem that, like the town clerk said, the tenets of these false religions are undeniable to everyone around us. It may seem that all of the U.S., the whole world, are worshiping the magnificence of the false gods. It may seem that all the money and all the banks and all the economy and all the governments and all the business owners and all the politicians are in on this grand idolatrous conspiracy, that all the world is blindly wrapped up in the worship of these false gods like it was in Ephesians. The truth is, for the most part, they are. It's all true. The world is full of idolatry. And the Bible makes this very clear. With idolatry being that big and that widespread and that infiltrated into every corner and facet of society, what are we to do? How do we change the world by living the way of Jesus? I believe that's why the Ephesians, at first, held on to their books of magic and their spells and incantations, their small gods and goddess figurines. These were their insurance policies just in case this Jesus fella didn't come through. But when they saw Jesus' power over the demons that held them into slavery of their will, they burned those insurance policies. And they were convinced that Jesus was all that they needed. And Demetrius saw the smoke, and he knew the economic and the social and the political repercussions of this burning, and this large group of people disengaging from idolatry, And he knew he would lose control and he would lose lots of money. And even more than that, what was crazy to him and to all the Ephesians was that when these believers disengaged from the things that they believed held society together, instead of being poor and helpless and depressed and unproductive, the Christians were more joyful and more peaceful and loving and gracious, even in the midst of the turmoil that they were going through. Their needs were still met. They didn't lack anything. They still had purpose and meaning in life and even more so. And they had a community that actually cared for each other instead of, instead of uh, manipulating one another and taking advantage of one another. And this infuriated, enraged the crowds. Here's the deal. Jesus is, our ins- is not our insurance policy. He's our assurance promissory Jesus didn't come to bail us out of troubling times and make sure we didn't go into economic, physical, political, social ruin. He didn't just come to keep us out of hell. Jesus came and is alive so that we can disengage from the evil, destructive, blinding, bondage-causing cults and systems of this world and attach ourselves to an eternal and beneficial relationship with him, the source of light and love and life. When we begin to live our lives with the belief that Jesus is our assurance promissory and not simply an insurance policy to get us out of hell, the way of Jesus, who is the word of God, will disrupt and disturb this world around us in a good way. 
And that's what's happening here in this passage. The Demetriuses of this world will try to fight against it. The clerics of the world will minimize it. But those of us who are in Christ Jesus will benefit from it. The way of Jesus, following the word of God, is full of freedom and blessing and joy as the Holy Spirit of Jesus protects us and provides for us and guides us as we live as citizens of a totally different kingdom, the kingdom of God. So where is the Spirit convicting you to burn your books of sorcery? The temptations which lure you away from Jesus. What have you been relying upon just in case this Jesus fella doesn't pan out? Where are you turning to for uh, worldly solutions to the problems around us instead of trusting in Jesus and his word? Where in your lives do you need to repent and return to your first love, Jesus, as we mentioned last week? Because the truth is, he really is all that we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this story of what the, the Ephesian believers did there in Ephesus. Up against an incredibly high-profile cult. They didn't go to war with it. They just simply obeyed you, burned their books, and follow you wholeheartedly, trusting that you would do everything that you promised to do. Provide for them, guide them, protect them, lead them, care for them, and when they died, take them to heaven. And as they did that, God, you, your word worked in their hearts and lives and it brought others into the kingdom and, and your kingdom spread through your word to, to every corner of the known world. And your kingdom really became a movement that was undeniable. And we are here today because of what you did even back in Ephesus. So thank you. Thank you that we have this hope and thank you that we have another way to live and it's the way of Jesus. That we don't have to get all wrapped up in what's going on around us, but that we can focus on Jesus who's the author and finisher of our faith, who's got us in the palm of his hands, who says, do not fear for you are with us. God, help us to make these truths real. Cause us to see them as reality and not just pithy sayings. Make your word come alive. Make your Holy Spirit uh, vibrant in our hearts. May we follow his lead. May we be sold out for you. Be with my brothers and sisters. Encourage them this week as they go into this world and as they go to their jobs, as they raise their families, as they love one another, as they care for those around them, as they, as they witness to those in darkness, as they care for those that are sick and hurting around them. God, empower them, strengthen them, embolden them. Make them good ambassadors of you. And may your name be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Why don't you stand for the benediction? I would encourage you to take time and greet one another and fellowship with one another. There's coffee out in the foyer and water and just spend some time getting to know someone that you haven't seen before. Greet one another. Uh, now this benediction from 2 Thessalonians and from Romans. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. For in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful, godly week.